When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not alone. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Katie. I'm 41. Look. Watch the road. What's Send the problem? The Send the police. Hey, guys, don't be a hero, mate. I said I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. Hands will call me Carl Williams and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, whose, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone. There'd be an enormous amount. Uh, Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, ill remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? I'm going to talk about Donald Webb, a mob-connected slippery bastard who liked to steal shit, murder cops, make it onto FBI lists, and hide in closets. Oh, okay. That's Mm. a lot of interesting hobbies to have. I know. How about you, Tara? This week I looked into a stone-cold psychopathic serial killer who murdered her son and several lovers for insurance money. She was called a black widow. Because of course she was. Yawn. Can't we think of less cliched ways to describe women like this? How about murderous mole? How about nasty Mrs. Kilwaffle? Yep. (laughs) She's a nasty Mrs. Kilwaffle if ever there was one. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, generous and incredibly sexy patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Now, you know the last patron episode we did last week is an absolute corker. Yeah, it really is. We were kind of like, damn, we should have released that wide. Too late just for the patrons. Just for the patrons. It's a corker. Yeah, yeah. Face-eating zombies. Yeah. Hey, let's get murdery. All right. Judy Buonanno was born Judias Welty in Quinar, Texas on April 4th, 1943. She was actually named Judias Jr. as she was named after her mother, who she claimed was a full-blooded member of the Mesquite Apache tribe, a tribe that has never existed. But she was a full-blooded member of them? of the tribe that doesn't exist, big time. me too. Yeah, you are, I can tell. Her father was an itinerant farm worker who struggled to look after his four children after their mother died of tuberculosis in 1945. Mm, Sad. 
Yeah, oh, particularly for the kids. With her father unable to work and look after the kids, two-year-old Judy and her infant brother Robert were sent to live with their grandparents and their two older siblings were put up for adoption. So that's got to be a terrible turn of events. That's a great year for those kids, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they lose their mother and then they lose their whole family. So that's pretty horrid. Judy's father remarried and settled in Roswell, New Mexico. Her new stepmother was, well, kind of like a Disney stepmother, not very nice. She was very loving and affectionate toward her own sons, but was angry that Judy was there at all. Judy said she was abused by both her stepmother and her father. Now, Judy has a penchant for lying her ass off, but there's some details here that make me believe her okay. in, this ca- in this particular case. I'm intrigued. She said she was beaten, starved, burned with cigarettes and forced to work like a slave at all hours of the day and night. Unsurprisingly, her stepbrothers also treated her poorly. At the age of 14, she'd had enough. Judy scolded two of her stepbrothers with hot grease and attacked her parents, punching, kicking and hitting them with anything she could get her hands on. Well, nothing burns like hot grease. Well, yeah, I imagine so. There have been some drunken bacon accidents that I've had and (laughs) I know it's true. I've witnessed those, some of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, not all of them. Some of them I just do in private. Her parents, being the charming fuckers they were, wanted her prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Yeah. Yeah, she was sentenced to 60 days in an adult jail, locked up with sex workers, thieves and violent grown-ass women. Still, when the judge asked her what he thought was a no-brainer of a question, was she ready to be on her best behaviour and go home, or would she rather go to reform school, Judy surprised everyone by choosing option B. Probably a wise move for her, actually. Well, yeah, this is what makes me believe the story she's telling because not many people would actually choose reform school. Yeah. Yeah, so she stayed at a girls' reformatory in Albuquerque called Foothills High School until her graduation in 1959, which goes to show there was absolutely no love lost between Judy and her family. She once said of her father that she wouldn't spit down his throat if his guts were on fire. Oh, wow, that's pretty strong language. Is that even physically possible? I don't know. Open your mouth and we'll try it out. <laughs> yeah? So if my anus was on fire, would you do bum tongue? No, I would not. Oh, what kind of friend are you? A terrible friend if this is how we're measuring such things. At the age of 17, Judy moved back to Roswell, where she assumed the pseudonym of Anna Schultz and worked as a nurse's aide. On March 30th, 1961, she gave birth to an illegitimate son who she christened Michael Schultz. She refused to ever confirm who his father was, but it's believed he was a flyboy from the nearby Air Force base. Ah, those flyboys. Oh, Judy's got a taste for those flyboys. Yeah? Yeah. On January 21st, 1962, she married another flyboy named James Goodyear. He was a quiet and earnest man who had no idea of the shit show that would soon engulf him. Oh, poor Jimmy Goodyear. Yeah, Jimmy. All he wanted to do was fly planes and make tyres. Yeah, and have kids and, you know, stuff. Yeah. (laughs) It's the comedy asides that people stay listening for. Yeah, it it really is. Yeah, I thought so. Their first child, a son they named James Jr., was born four years later. James Sr. celebrated the birth of his first son by adopting Judy's firstborn, Michael Schultz. Ah, That's a cool thing to do. a sweet man. A year later, the couple moved to Orlando, Florida and welcomed baby Kimberly into the family. A year later, not exactly qualified and I guess drawing on her own experience as a child, Judy opened up a childcare centre called Conway Acres in Orlando, listing her husband as co-owner. 
Her husband continued to serve in the Air Force and soon embarked on a tour of duty in Vietnam. In June 1971, he returned. Several weeks after getting home, Goodyear began experiencing weakness, nausea, diarrhoea and vomiting. On September 13, 1971, Goodyear became so ill he was hospitalised. Doctors were unable to determine the cause of his condition, which continued to deteriorate. On September 16, 1971, James Goodyear died as a result of cardiovascular collapse and renal failure. Good Lord, you don't want your renal to fail. No, no, I aim for renal success in all areas of life. Judy's former housemate Constance Lang later testified that Judy had joked on several occasions about putting arsenic in her husband's food and drinks. A friend of hers, Beverly Owens, testified that after hearing an argumentative phone call between Owens and her husband, Judy suggested that Owens take out more life insurance on him and then poison him with arsenic that could be bought at the supermarket. Well, that's a little bit damning, isn't it? It's quite damning. Now, I bet people are listening now and going, oh, poisoner story. They're not very interesting. Well, that's that's how I'd be feeling. This isn't just a poisoner story. Oh, there's okay? more. Okay, there's so much fuckery. Poison is, it's not the least of anyone's worries, but it's not the whole thing. All right. Following Goodyear's death, Judy waited a whole entire five days before cashing in his three life insurance policies, which totaled over $100,000. Now, that's a lot of scratch for 1971. That is a lot of money for 1971. A few months later, Judy's Orlando home went up in flames for some reason, and she earned herself another 90000 in fire insurance. Ooh, do you think she torched it? She totally torched it. She does it again later. All right. Yeah, she's totally into that shit. She had no qualms about using the ill-gotten money to treat herself to a Corvette, possibly a little red Corvette. Well, that's the only colour they come in, don't they? Well, the little ones. According to Prince. She also bought diamonds, trips to the beauty salon, expensive clothes and designer perfume. All right. Because if you're going to be a monster, you should smell like a princess, (laughs) I guess. After her tragedies slash windfalls, Judy relocated the family to Pensacola. Within a year, she had met and moved in with a new boyfriend named Bobby Joe, I didn't see it coming, Morris. Well, I guess he doesn't see it coming. No, no, by name and by nature, Bobby Joe. Judy's oldest son, Michael, was proving to be a problem for his mother, which meant his days were also numbered. Michael. Michael. Hmm. Not only were his grades crappy, but he was also regularly getting in trouble at school for being disruptive. In 1974, she got so sick of his shit that she put him in foster care with a provision that he have psychiatric treatment. She's like, oh, I don't want to deal with that shit. You guys do it. Wow. Parent of the year. Oh. She's going to win that. That's no, not, not based on that, dude. Oh, oh really? it's it nothing. Worse? Oh, it's so nothing. Bobby Joe Morris moved to Trinidad, Colorado in 1977, and Judy and her kids joined him, but not before she torched her Pensacola house and collected a handsome sum in fire insurance yet again. Uh She doesn't believe in, like, you know the cleaning that you have to do to, like, get your bond back or sell a house? She's like, oh, fuck that, I'm just going to torch it. Oh, God, sometimes I feel that. Oh, I've felt that so many times, particularly with rentals. Uh, When the house is just so messy, can't we just burn all our stuff and buy... Move into another house and buy new stuff. What about when you have horizontal blinds and you're supposed to clean them and they're just impossible and greasy and I wanted to die last time. Yeah. Fortunately, my boyfriend did most of it. Winning. (laughs) She reclaimed Michael from foster care and they all moved to Colorado together. Oh, that's Isn't that nice? 
Although they never married, Judy pretended that she was Billy Joe's wife and changed her name to Judas Priest. No, Judas Morris. Uh, she posed as Mrs. Morris so she could take out life insurance on him. Bobby Joe was admitted to San Rafael Hospital on January 4, 1978, but doctors could find no cause for his sudden illness and he was released into Judy's loving care on January 21st. No. Mm, yeah, not a good idea. Two days later, he collapsed at the dinner table and was rushed back to hospital where he died on January 28th. Oh, no. His cause of death was officially ascribed to cardiac arrest and metabolic acidosis. How, how was his renal? Did I don't, that fail oh, too? Look, I, I'm guessing that it probably failed yeah. or it was just like sputtering along. Yeah. In early February, Judy cashed three life insurance policies on Bobby Joe. His family suspected she had murdered him for money and they didn't think that he was her first victim. In 1974, Judy and Bobby Joe had been visiting his hometown of Bruton, Alabama, when a Florida man was found dead in a Bruton motel room. An anonymous call traced to a local payphone led police to the room where the victim was found. He'd been shot in the chest with a twenty-two, and his throat had been slashed. So he was double murdered. Double deaded. After the news of the murder broke, Bobby Joe's mother said she overheard Judy telling Bobby Joe, The son of a bitch shouldn't have come up here in the first place. He knew if he came up here he was going to die. Police in Bruton reported that there were no fingerprints left inside the room, no bullet was recovered from the body, and they never had any firm suspects in this case. No fingerprints in a motel room? I well, find none that hard that, to believe. <laughs> none that they thought were related to the case in any way. Right. Right. On May 3rd, 1978... So they could account for every single fingerprint that was there. Clearly. Yeah, I'd find that hard to believe. But it's anyway. It's called police work, Barney. Look it up. All right. I will. On May 3rd, 1978, Judy legally changed her and her children's last name to Buonanno, just to shit with my mouth because it's hard for me to say. It's the Spanish equivalent of Goodyear. Some thought of this as a tribute to her late husband, James, but that's pretty unlikely. Yeah, others thought, uno momento, por favor. Yeah. A month later, Judy moved her family back to Pensacola, settling into a house in suburban Gulf Breeze. Michael continued to be a disappointment to his mother, failing many of his classes and dropping out of high school during his sophomore year. In June 1979, he joined the Army and was sent to Fort Benning, Georgia after basic training. On his way to his new post, he stopped off to visit his mother in Florida, which was a very, very bad idea. By the time he reached Fort Benning on November 6th, he was already showing symptoms of base metal poisoning. Medical tests revealed seven times the normal level of arsenic in Michael's body, and there was nothing they could do to reverse the destruction it had wreaked on him. The muscles of his arms and lower legs had atrophied to the point where Michael could no longer walk or use his hands. When he finally left the hospital, he was wearing braces on his legs and a prosthetic device with a hook on one arm. These braces weighed a whopping 60 pounds or 27 kilograms. Wow, his mum really fucked him up. Yeah, yeah, it's not over yet. Okay. It's not over yet. Michael was released into Judy's care, and what do you think she organised for a fun activity soon afterwards? Hmm, let me think about this. Paintball? No, but, but you're kind of close there. Really? Why, a canoeing trip, of course. While they're paintballing? While they're paintballing. No, there was no paintball. Oh. Michael really wasn't into the idea of going canoeing, but Judy was hell-bent on it for some reason. 
On May 13, 1980, Michael went canoeing with his mother and younger brother on the East River near Milton in Florida. He could barely move, was weighed down by his leg braces, and wasn't wearing a life jacket. Yeah, I think I'm seeing where this is going to go. Yeah, you think? You uh, think? Glug, 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 glug. Mm, yeah, real fast. After a strange series of events, including a snake apparently dropping from the sky into the canoe, their boat overturned. James and Judy made it to shore safely, but Michael sank like a bag of rocks and drowned. Of course he did. A man named Ricky Hicks had been fishing nearby and came to Judy's aid after hearing a commotion. He later testified that she told him that she had lost the other boy after a snake had gotten into the canoe, which overturned as she tried to hold it down with a paddle. A likely story. She said it was useless to go back for Michael. Ah, no point. Yeah, don't bother. She then demanded Hicks give her a cold beer from his esky and drank it. Drowning errant sons sure is thirsty work. Wow, made him into a boat anchor. That's terrible. Yeah, and then went, give me a beer. Uh, wow, heartless bitch. <laughs> Big time, monstrous mm. mama. What is she, a Mrs. something cunt waffle? <laughs> <laughs> I said kill waffle. A uh, kill waffle, whoopsie. Oh, ah. your, your mouth, Tara, is going to get you in oh, trouble one I day. I know, ladies don't swear. No. Oh, it's terrible. <sighs> Former housemate Constance Lang later testified that Judy was ashamed of Michael and they didn't have as close a relationship as she had with her other kids, James and Kimberly. What? She, what was her name? Constance Lang. Constance Lang has always been... <laughs> has always been swearing. No, constant craving. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, no it? one got it. No one cares. Everyone hates Katie me. Katie Lang was probably really happy about that. Well, yeah. Shout out to you, KD, if you're listening. Yeah, KD, we know you love the show. I know you like it when I swear a lot. I know you're working on a song with some remixes of me just swearing my tits off. And everybody's looking forward to hearing that, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Me and my tits included. She said Judy would get her to take Michael out of the house when visitors arrived, as she considered him to be an embarrassment despite the fact that she had caused his condition. This is what Constant Slang said. Constant Slang did it. Well, she said it. At the time of his death, surprise, surprise, Micah was covered by several insurance policies with Judy as the beneficiary. After his death, she received over $100,000 in benefits. When speaking to the authorities after the event, Judy told them that her name was Dr. Judias Buenano and she was a, a clinical physician in Fort Walton. Wow, this woman knows how to lie. Oh, damn. Go big or go home. Yeah, drown your son or don't. Local authorities accepted Dr. Judy's description of the accident and closed their files. That's some nice okay. Po- that's some, just drowned. That's some nice police work. You know, she was just taking out her son who was wearing 27 kilos of metal on him, just taking him canoeing without any kind of like life jacket, and he died. Uh-huh. Would you like a beer, Dr. Judy? Fortunately, army investigators were more persistent and launched their own search for evidence. Handwriting experts suggested that Michael's signature on the insurance applications had probably been forged. Judy spent the money opening a beauty parlour in Gulf Breeze. Oh, lovely. Isn't that nice? Let's get pretty. Judy's next lover slash target was businessman John Gentry II. In order to impress him, she lied and said that she had PhDs in biochemistry and psychology from the University of Alabama, plus a recent position as the head of nursing at West Florida Hospital. 
Guess that's why she's opening a beauty salon, huh? Yeah, mm. that doesn't make sense. No, you can't open a beauty salon without at least two PhDs. Is that's that what, right? Oh, that's what I've heard. Oh. It was all total bullshit, but Gentry fell for it. Hook, line and stinker. <laughs> He seemed to enjoy buying Judy expensive presents, Caribbean cruises and imported champagne. I'm telling you, this woman's vagina must have been something else, right? Like, I'm guessing it was made out of diamonds, bacon and sports cars. Wow, those diamonds uh, would be a bit abrasive, but I guess the bacon would make up for that. Oh, and the upholstery, pure leather upholstery of the sports car. Well, who doesn't like a ready, little red Corvette? Yeah, especially when it smells like brand new leather. In October 1982, John and Judy took out life insurance policies on one another because that's how you keep the romance alive. The policies were for $50,000 each, but behind Gentry's back, Judy increased his to $500,000 and paid the higher premiums herself. By December, Dr. Judy was insisting Gentry take Vicon C vitamin capsules that she gave to him. Now, this is going to surprise you, Barney. Gentry began suffering from convulsions, nausea and vomiting. Oh, what? 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 Didn't see that coming. He checked into the hospital for 12 days and made a miraculous recovery. After returning home to Dr. Judy, Gentry began taking the Vicon C again and began suffering the same symptoms. What? Well, there must be something wrong with those pills. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Well, it's probably an accident. Gentry couldn't help but notice that his symptoms disappeared when he stopped taking the vitamins. Ah, he is so vagmatized, though. He just still didn't suspect that Judy was trying to do him in. Well, yeah. Well, you know. We've all been there. Bacon, diamond, sports cars. That's right. The the holy trifecta of... Of vagmatization. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) On June 25th, 1983, Judy told Gentry that she was pregnant with his baby. Hooray! Hooray! Thrilled at the prospect of being a father, he went out to go buy a bottle of champagne to celebrate. John never made it to the bottle shop, though. When he got in his car and turned the key in the ignition, it caused a bomb planted in the car to explode. Oh, my God, she exploded him. She car-bombed him. Because he didn't die from the poison, she exploded him. The blast nearly killed him, but after several hours being operated on by trauma surgeons, they managed to save his life. Wow. Lucky. Lucky, lucky, lucky. Police got their first opportunity to question Gentry on June 29th after learning of his curious insurance situation. Did you explode your husband? Oh, no, they're, they're, he's not her husband. He's her oh, boyfriend. Sorry. And they're talking to him, not her. Right. Also, like, it's a car bomb, and this guy's just like a regular businessman. He's not the kind of guy that gets car bombed, he's so not, it did raise some eyebrows. He's not the president of Tasmania. No, oh, always in danger. A police background check revealed the enormous lies Judy had told him about her qualifications and her life. He was particularly stunned to learn that Judy couldn't possibly be pregnant with his baby as she'd been surgically sterilised in 1975. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Gentry didn't want to believe them at first, but they just had so much evidence that he couldn't help but come around. And he was like, but her vag, it's made of bacon. Ah! Okay. Detectives also learned that Judy had been telling friends that Gentry was terminally ill since November 1982. Obviously, she was preparing them for his impending demise. Oh, no. He was so sick that his car exploded. Yeah. Well, well you see, my husband, my, my boyfriend's got this condition where he might explode in the car. <laughs> yeah, sometimes he vomits and also he might explode. Yeah. Yeah, it's very serious. 
She'd recently booked tickets for a world cruise for herself and her children, but not Gentry. Ah, that's suspicious. Mm -hmm. Now, finally convinced, he gave police several of the vitamin capsules Judy had prescribed to him. Did they test them? No, they, took, they, they, they took them. They, and, they, <laughs> and, they, and they got sick as well. <laughs> They're like, oh, damn it. They should have tested them. Uh, no, well, they, they thought that they were getting a cold. Oh. Analysis revealed that they contained paraformaldehyde, which is a poison with no medical uses, except maybe to euthanize a man because he was no longer useful. Yeah, mm. to help a man explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exploding pills. On July 27th, detectives and federal agents searched Judy's home in Gulf Breeze. In her bedroom, they found wire and tape that matched the car bomb that had nearly killed Gentry. According to Ted Chamberlain, the Pensacola detective who examined her past and discovered Judy's trail of insurance scams and murder, Judy just went one murder too far. If she'd just let that last boyfriend alone, she probably could have walked away from the other murders. So had she not tried to kill Gentry, she may as she may well have gotten away with everything. He describes her as the coldest killer I ever knew. What's colder than cold? Judy cold. Nice. <laughs> and look at this. Look at this. I've just discovered a trail of murder and mayhem. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh where does it lead? That leads to Judy. Oh, Judas. Judas. She's going to need a Judas priest. Yes, she will. Judy was arrested at her beauty shop on charges of attempted exploding and poisoning. There there are official names, but I couldn't be fucked with them. Attempted exploding. Yeah. By (laughs) mid-August, authorities had traced the source of the dynamite used in the bomb, linking the buyer to Judy through phone records. Judy made bail on the attempted murder charge, but there were more in store. Ah. On January 11th, 1984, she was indicted for first-degree murder in the death of her son, Michael, with an additional count of grand theft for the insurance scam. During her arrest, of course, she staged a fit of convulsions and was admitted to Santa Rosa Hospital under guard. Oh, no, I'm I'm not a perpetrator. I'm a victim. Bobby Joe Morris's body was exhumed in February, and it was determined that arsenic levels in the liver, kidneys, hair, and nails were indicative of chronic and acute exposure to arsenic. Identical results were obtained with the exhumation of her first husband, James Goodyear, in March 1984. There you go. The noose is starting to tighten. Yeah. The net is closing. Another cliche. Yeah, the cliches are clicheing. Judy was tried separately for each murder and for the attempted murder. She was sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for 25 years for the murder of her son Michael and 12 years for the attempted murder of Gentry. And she was found guilty of first-degree murder in the case of her first husband, James Goodyear, for which she was sentenced to death by electrocution. Ah, the chair. Oh, Sparky. Not Sparky. Colorado prosecutors decided not to continue with the case against her over the murder of Bobby Joe Morris, as she was already under death sentence in Florida. You can only kill her once. Yeah, they're just like, Ugh, we'd love to kill her too, but it costs a lot of money. Yeah. Judy passed 13 years on Florida's death row, writing letters, crocheting blankets and baby clothes, writing shit poetry and maintaining her innocence. I have eternal security, and I know that when I die, I will go straight to heaven and I will see Jesus, she said. Judy claimed she'd been the victim of defamation, assassination of character, to make me into a vile monster. Also, she said she was innocent and insisted that jurors had been swayed by manufactured evidence. Fake news. 
Despite being sentenced to death, she boasted that the state of Florida would never go through with it as they hadn't executed a woman in 150 years. Oh, did they go through with it? Tell me. Her final meal consisted of broccoli, asparagus, strawberries and hot tea. Who the fuck has that as a final meal? Give me the broccoli, asparagus, strawberries and hot tea. What is she on a diet? What, she wants some some Brussels sprouts in there as well. Yeah, have a real party. Give me all the carbs and all the fats and all the things that are fried. Oh, I want to fill up all of my stomachs. Oh, yeah, even that special ice cream one that you have. That's right. Judy was executed in Old Sparky on March 30th, 1998. She was the first woman to be executed in Florida since 1848 when a freed slave named Celia was hanged for killing her former master. Now, I don't know the details of that case, but it's hard not to assume her former master might have deserved it. Yeah, he probably had it coming. Yeah, yeah, like... Mm, slavery. I don't I don't agree with it. Well, hell no. I think it's bad. Of course it's bad. Jesus Christ. Uh. Judy was only the third woman to be executed in the United States since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 1976. Despite maintaining her innocence until she was put to death, Judy wrote a poem while in prison that seems to imply otherwise. Well, I bet it's really shit. I it wanna, is. I want to hear it. <laughs> it's totally shit. It's called Masks. Masks. Don't be fooled by me. Don't be fooled by the face I wear. For I wear a thousand masks. Masks I'm afraid to take off. And none of them are me. Pretending is an art that's second nature to me. But don't be fooled. For God's sake, don't be fooled. Wow, what shit? Yeah, I know. Also, like, isn't she going, yeah, I'm a fake ass bitch and don't be fooled by me because I'll explode you and poison you? Yeah, well, no, that says that she's a horrible, duplicitous murderer. Really? Yes, I know. Even though she's like, I'm innocent and everyone's framing me. <laughs> and that thing about Jesus going to be there to meet her. Oh, he's going to bitch slap her down to hell, I guess. I, I'm, I'm th- I don't think he's going to be there. No, you think you'll just be like, oh, I'm not showing up to that I'm shit show. I'm just not showing up. Just, yeah. yeah. No, screw that. She ain't, uh, she ain't coming up to my world. No way. Yeah, so what a nasty piece of work. The mm. thing that really got me was the whole canoe thing. I mean, yeah. my God, it's your own son. She, You're the one who put him there. She boat anchored Michael. Hard. Ah. She boat anchored Michael hard. Yeah. There's a rule in boating, Tara, that when you throw the anchor overboard, you should have a rope tied to it. Right, okay. Generally. Well, I know that you're an avid boater, so I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Hey, about I used it. to sail when you I, used in my to youth. sail the seas of bullshit. <laughs> and you still do. You just don't have a, a canoe anymore. Yeah. I'm a poet. I didn't know it. I had a boat and couldn't row it. That was it. So, um,. I believe that you might know what time it is. I think it might be true crime nerd time. Yay! True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. I love true crime. And when the sun is out, I've got something I can obsess about. So, Barney, what is this true crime nerd time that you speak of? Well, Tara, true crime nerd time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song. A patchwork quilt with a pattern of Aileen Wernos's face on it. Or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy? 
Um, you can record your voice. <laughs> just do it on your phone and we'll play it. Or write it and we'll read it out. See our website for details or just email us at bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com. So, the big news this week. Yes. They caught the Golden State Killer and yes. it is true crime nerd Christmas. Oh, it's been <gasps> going off in our feed, hasn't it? Oh, and everyone's feed for that it's, matter. It's the only thing anyone's talking about and it's so exciting because like, it gives me hope, um, the rest of us hope too, that maybe the Zodiac's next and maybe uh, you know other people who've committed heinous crimes in the past that they're yeah. going to get their comeuppance. That bastard who stole my son's BMX. Yeah, that two was two years, years ago. ago. Mm, yeah. Do they have his DNA? <laughs> well, no. I think they'll need it so of course uh because of all this news a lot of people have been talking about michelle mcnamara's book i'll be gone in the dark and someone sent us in a review of that uh lovely ingrid luna thank you so much ingrid so i'm going to read her review now she opened it with hi tara and barney first off i absolutely adore your podcast and your no fucks given attitude well i don't care about that line but um (laughs) Uh, I'm a scenic artist and I work long hours by myself, usually late at night, and I appreciate your company. Well, we're happy to be there. We are, although late at night with murder stories, that's pretty freaky. Mm, Brave woman. This case means a lot to me as I was born and raised and still live in one of the towns that the GSK, the Golden State Killer, terrorised. I hope that you are both very well and Barney is saving all his coins for all the therapy poor Dex is going to need (laughs) after listening to last week's episode. (laughs) Keep kicking against the pricks yes. and wrecking up those lady swear debts. I'm gonna. So, Ingrid, I'll be gone in the dark by Michelle McNamara. Imagine, if you will, a mother sitting in the darkness of her sleeping child's playroom late at night, night after night, bent over her laptop, going further and further down the dark rabbit hole of internet articles, emails from authorities and fellow searchers. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Chasing a killer. Feeling the shape of him slip out of her fingers just when she thinks she is finally about to grasp him. There are so many clues, so many tips. He should be caught. Michelle McNamara's obsession catching the human monster she named the Golden State Killer, who committed over 50 rapes and at least 12 killings in California in the late 70s and early 80s, led her to create this incredibly haunting, poetic and detailed book. I'll Be Gone in the Dark is so beautifully written that at times you forget the grisly subject matter until she delivers the cold hard facts like the twist of an elegant knife. Ooh, that's a nice turn of phrase. It was clearly her life's work which she never got to finish. Sadly, Michelle died in 2016. 
just two years before the killer's capture, only days ago, after decades of anonymity. Before, it was impossible to read this book without catching some of her fever to solve the mystery. Now, it's impossible to read it without searching every sentence for the killer's presence. Was he at this press conference? This crime scene? Because he was a fucking cop, oh my god. It's also impossible to read this book without imagining what it would have meant to her to know he's been captured. It's bittersweet. After Michelle's death, the book was completed with great care and respect by Paul Haynes and Billy Jensen, Michelle's fellow researchers and colleagues. I'll Be Gone in the Dark is framed by an intro by badass Gillian Flynn and Michelle's marvellous husband, Patton Oswald. If you can get through Michelle's letter to an old man at the end of the book without weeping into a bottle of wine or a vat of macaroni and cheese, whatever that is, <laughs> um, I doff my hat to you and I don't believe you. Whether you think you know everything about this case or are just hearing about it due to headlines this week, I can't recommend it highly enough. Just don't read it in the dark. Ooh. Wow, that was a that was great beautiful. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Um, what I wanted to do yesterday when it was announced, I just wanted to cancel everything and just read "I'll Be Gone in the Dark." Uh, um, but yeah. that would mean there was no episode today, so I didn't do that. <laughs> but I'm hoping one day. Thank you so much, Ingrid. It was brilliant. Now, Barney, I do believe it's time for you to tell me and our listeners a murder story. It is, Tara. You know, I've been looking on the FBI um, 10 Most Wanted uh, website. Uh, oh, the whole FBI website's cool, by the oh, way. <laughs> it's, such, it's such a rabbit hole. Oh, there's so much information on there. Yeah, and uh, the 10 Most Wanted, their history of that is, is amazing. It's very thorough. Some great photos. So this is one of the stories from there. Excellent. I'm all ears. Donald Eugene Webb was born Donald Eugene Perkins in Oklahoma City in 1931 and was raised by his paternal grandfather. As a young man, Webb enlisted in the United States Navy but received a dishonourable discharge. Oh, that's the worst kind of discharge. Really? What's your top three uh, dis bad <laughs> discharges? Well, I mean, none of them are good. Um, a gun discharging? That's bad. That's, yeah, it's pretty bad, but it's better than dishonourable. Oh, anal's the next one that comes to mind. And no, this isn't a good question. It's, no. It's not, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, a dishonourable discharge is pretty bad. Yeah, there are let's, worse discharges, though, as we've learned. Let's just agree to that. Yeah. <laughs> After leaving the Navy, he settled in Bristol County, Massachusetts, and legally changed his name from Perkins to Webb in 1956 for reasons. Ooh, reasons are the best reasons to Which do I anything. Which I don't know what they were. <laughs> Webb worked as a butcher, salesman, restaurant manager, and vending machine repairman, but mostly he liked stealing shit and became mob-connected. Ooh. Over the years, Webb spent extended periods in the southwest of New England and on the west coast. Webb had convictions for burglary, possession of counterfeit money, funny money. Bollers. Bollers. <laughs> Bollers aren't funny money. They they're are. Real. They're Barney dollars. They are not real. You can't buy shit with them. Well, yeah, they're not worth anything, no. but they're real. Okay, sure. I've never seen one. I'll show you one later. Oh, that just sounds like a threat. <laughs> Possession of a weapon and dangerous instruments, breaking and entering, armed bank robbery, grand larceny and car theft. How was he actually out of prison with this on his rap sheet, well, I ask you? Well, he did spend some time in prison. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. 
Pennsylvania police have described Webb as an itinerant burglar well-versed in the art of criminal impersonation. Webb was identified by the FBI as an associate of the Patriarcha crime family who made a living robbing banks, jewellery stores and high-end hotels up and down the East Coast. They fenced the goods through mafiosa connections in Providence, Rhode Island. He was also involved with an organised crime outfit in the Miami area. He just has his fingers in all the pies. Yeah, the pies are into it too. Yeah, yeah the pies are just like, do me. Yeah, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Webb was described by his friends as a flashy dresser, a lover of dogs, and had a reputation as a big tipper. He sounds kind of cool in that regard. All of those things are good, I think. (laughs) Yeah, you love a flashy dresser. You would wear cowboy boots all the time if you could. Well, I would. In 1979, Webb and two accomplices burglarised suburban Albany homes while posing as sewer and water inspectors. Hello? I'm here to check your poo and faucets. Well, come right in. There you go. (laughs) Webb was arrested in Colony, New York and charged with attempted burglary. But after his $35,000 bail was posted, like a fart on a stormy day, he was in the wind. (laughs) Good way to work in a fart gag. (laughs) And he failed to appear at a December 1979 court date. Well, farts in the wind don't normally appear at court. Well, that's right. They're gone. The following year, on December 4, 1980, Gregory B. Adams, a 31-year-old police chief of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, and a nine-year veteran of law enforcement, was about to have a real crappy day. He made a routine traffic stop in the parking lot of an Agway feed store. Chief Adams used his patrol car to stop a suspicious-looking white-coloured Mercury Cougar by blocking the exit of the parking lot. When he asked the driver for his licence, he gave fraudulent identity documents. They looked real enough, but the experienced Chief Adams smelt something was off and asked the man to exit the vehicle. This day was going to be worse than crappy, as the man was Donald Eugene Webb. After getting out of the car, an argument ensued. Pushes turned to shoves and eventually escalated into full-blown fisticuffs. Webb knocked Adams to the ground, but not before Chief Adams unholstered his service revolver and got a shot off, hitting Webb in the leg. This only made Webb angrier, and after disarming Adams, Webb brutally pistol-whipped him several times with his own revolver. Witnesses heard shots. Four pop noises, presumably from a semi-automatic 25 caliber Colt pistol which Webb had tucked in his waistband of his pants, and a boom from Chief Adams's revolver. Webb shot Adams twice in the chest, one bullet collapsing a lung and another tearing through the bottom of his heart. Adams was not wearing his bulletproof vest at the time because he had lent it to another officer. Further proof that nice guys really do finish last. Oh no, I don't want nice guys to think that and become mean guys. But it can happen. Sometimes it does. Not always. Well, in this case. Webb then ran to Adam's patrol car, ripped out its microphone and took the keys before driving away in his own car. A nearby resident found the mortally wounded Adams after hearing his cries for help. As they waited for paramedics to arrive, he told the woman he didn't think he would make it and asked her to pray for him. Adams's face was so badly beaten, he was almost unrecognisable. He lost consciousness on the way to the hospital and died of his injuries. Hmm. It was the first murder in the town's nearly 150-year history. The whole town of Saxonburg were in shock. His wife, Marianne Adams, and their two sons, Benjamin and Gregory Jr., were devastated. Oh, well, of course. 
The chief was buried on Monday, December 8, 1980. The funeral was held on a freezing cold day and drew 450 law enforcement officers. Dozens of marked cars lined the country roads approaching St Mary's Cemetery in the village of Herman in Butler County. Seven years earlier, Chief Adams had met his wife Mary Ann on a bus on their way to Washington, D.C., where he worked and where Mary Ann's sister resided. Raised in Natrona Heights, the chief was a natural leader, a Marine, a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, and just before he was hired to work in Saxonburg, he was a police officer in Washington, D.C. He left D.C. after becoming tired of big city crime, which he had personally experienced when his partner was killed in an oddly coincidental line-of-duty shooting during a traffic stop. Oh, wow. That's a bit of a bookmark. Yeah. Yeah. After which he joined the Saxonburg Police Department in 1973. About four years later, he was promoted to chief. He married Marianne on August 21, 1976, soon after they began building their family, establishing their home in the borough where he worked. Life was good, Marianne recalled until her life did a 180-degree turn. Among the evidence found at the murder scene were a 25 caliber Colt pistol, a large pool of O-type blood, that's Webb's blood type, and a New Jersey driver's license bearing the name Stanley John Portis, an alias of Webb's and a name of his girlfriend Lillian's deceased husband. Remember that name, Lillian. Lillian, okay. Yeah. Lillian. Webb is believed to have been in Saxonburg for a planned burglary of a jewellery store. Chief Adams' revolver was later found approximately seven miles along Corn Planter Road in Winfield, Pennsylvania. All six bullets of the weapon had been fired. Oh, I thought the witnesses said it was only fired four times. Well, maybe they're wrong. Yeah, can happen. It can happen. Yeah. The Mercury Cougar getaway vehicle Webb used was located on December 21, 1980 at a Howard Johnson's parking lot in Warwick, Rhode Island. Significant amounts of O-type blood were found under the steering wheel, suggesting that the gunshot wound Webb had copped in the struggle with Adams had bled profusely, and I hope it bloody well hurt. Yes. Webb was named as a main suspect in the killing of Chief Adams, and a nationwide manhunt began. But Webb, being the slippery bastard that he was, was lying low. Webb's description was distributed amongst law enforcement and read... White male with three brown eyes. <laughs> Five nine in height, weighs approximately 165 pounds and graying brown hair. You made me snort. <laughs> Sorry. Well, he does have three brown eyes. Yeah, no, it took me a second, but I got there. Small scar on his right cheek and his right forearm. Has the following tattoos. Don on the web of his right hand and Anne on his chest. Okay, can you explain those to me? Why does he have Don written on his hand? For well, the Aussies, is it because he likes processed meat? No, his name is Don. Donald. Oh, okay, yeah. so it's so he remembers who he is despite the fact he has a lot of aliases. Well, what, yeah. What about Anne? Was it the name of like his, his cat or his like hairless Might hamster? Be, well, it was the name of his cock. It was, his dick was named Anne? Yeah. What, like, hey, baby, would you like to see a picture of my Anne? Oh, you sent a lot of Anne pics. <laughs> oh, no, I hate a man that sends un- unwanted Anne pics to people. Hey, it's babe. not cool. Hey, baby, Anne's ready for you. <laughs> okay, I think it's interesting from, like, a gender-fluid perspective to call your penis Anne. And that's actually all I have to say. I'm, look, I'm into it. Look, maybe it was the name of his mum. I don't know. I'm going with cock. Maybe an ex-girlfriend. Probably, nah. probably his cock. Definitely his his dick. His aliases include A.D. Baker, Donald Eugene Perkins, 
Donald Eugene Pierce, John S. Portis, Stanley John Portis, Bev Webb, Eugene Bevelyn Webb, oh my God, Eugene this... Donald Webb, and Stanley Webb. This guy really loves his middle name. You know, mine's Deidre and I hate it. Like, if I yeah. was doing fakey names, there's no way there'd be any Deidre involved. So you'd change it to Deidre, Deidre. Deidre, Deidre, Deidre Jr.? <laughs> No, I no like Deidre's it. whatsoever. No Deidre's? Yeah, but old Eugene here, he's into it, I guess. Yeah. Donald Eugene f- fucking lies. All right, Deidre. <laughs> he was charged in absentia with murder, attempted burglary, and unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. He was also charged with calling his cock a stupid name. <laughs> if only more people were charged with that. On May 4, 1981, Webb was named as the 375th Fugitive to be placed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. You know, with the 10 Most Wanted list, you get a commemorative pen and it's really good. You just have to send through your, like, address. your address to the FBI and they will send you the commemorative pen that tells you that you're on the I, 10 Most Wanted list. It's a ruse. No, no, it's legit great. And then they arrest you. Ah, uh, yeah, it sounds like a ruse. We've had <laughs> strong ties to Fall River and New Bedford, Massachusetts, where the last confirmed sighting of him was made by an anonymous tipster. Um, anonymous. Anonymous. <laughs> I think how you said it was cute, but it, yeah. Webb had strong ties to Fall River and New Bedford, Massachusetts, where the last confirmed sighting of him was made by an anonymous tipster in July 1981. It was reported to the Boston FBI office, but Webb, like a cockroach when you turn the lights on, had scuttled away, (laughs) possibly under a fridge. (laughs) There were later unconfirmed sightings of Webb in Massachusetts, Washington, Canada, Costa Rica, and in the laundry, possibly under the washing machine. (laughs) The FBI considered Webb a master of assumed identities. Did he wear disguises and shit? Probably. Like, just a big cockroach suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, okay, makes sense. No wonder he was in the wind for so long. Well, Deirdre, some, oh, fuck <laughs> sometime in 1981, Webb, living under an assumed name, married his girlfriend Lillian and they had a son together. Webb's wife Lillian lived in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts, and she worked as a saleswoman for a box company. Want to buy a box? You can put things in it. <laughs> That box sells itself, doesn't it? (laughs) I'm so glad you made a box joke without making it about lady parts. That's classy, mate. Damn, that was a missed opportunity, wasn't (laughs) it? You just didn't think of it, eh? (laughs) Now, Tara, you would think the FBI would be looking at all of his known associates, right? I'm assuming that they were. They were. But Webb had a, well, a web of mob (laughs) friends who were keeping him hidden, possibly behind the skirting boards. (laughs) In January 1990, (laughs) FBI Director William S. Sessions received a letter written by someone claiming to be Webb, asking for forgiveness from the Adams family. The letter suggested he might surrender to authorities, but only if he could talk directly to John Walsh, host of the TV show America's Most Wanted. Like we didn't know that. You see, by this time, Tara, being in the wind for nine years, Webb was kind of famous as he'd been featured on America's Most Wanted and in episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. That's a creepy show. The host, right? Yeah, that dead look behind his eyes. Peter Graves. Yeah, I feel like he's only been partially reanimated. And it works. Yeah, electricity probably. Yeah, look, no slight on Peter. Electricity. It's actually a perfect fit for that show. Well, um, back to uh, America's Most Wanted. Walsh said on his show that the FBI's evidence technicians examined the letter and believed it was authentic. 
Ooh. It doesn't really sound like him, though. Like, when you're, like, hiding out, you don't normally send letters. Yeah, I think this is bullshit. A few months later, on April 1, 1990, a man claiming to be Webb called John Moss, but when asked questions to confirm his identity, was unable to name two of Webb's closest relatives. The call was dismissed as an April Fool's joke. It's not pretty funny. It's not funny at all, actually. Like, someone was murdered and their family is really waiting on this information. Not cool. Yeah. Comedy true crime. It just doesn't work. Oh, I know. Um, It's it's just vile that anyone would even think like that. I hate that whole genre. I know. I won't listen to one because they're all the worst. (laughs) (laughs) In 1996, the FBI released an aged-enhanced photograph of Webb, hoping someone would recognise him. No one did. They need one of those busts, like what John Bender did of John List. Yeah, but don't you need a skull? For no, that? no. They didn't have John List's skull when he made the bust of oh, him. Oh yeah, I didn't really think this through, did I? <laughs> I like that about you, Barney. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tara. So, you want to know what happened next? Of course, I do. Lillian Webb's home was placed under surveillance in the 1990s. According to court documents, an FBI agent observed that whenever Lillian Webb returned home, she always used a remote control to open the garage door, drove her car into the garage, and immediately closed the door before exiting the car. That's pretty suspicious. I don't know. I feel like... No, it's not really. (laughs) Isn't that what people do? She was also observed using evasive driving techniques, and she wore wigs and changed her hair colour during the periods of overt and covert physical surveillance. Well, maybe like me, she wants to be a drag queen. I think she knew that she had a tail and she was trying to shake it. Well, probably. She's married to a famous cockroach. But, you know, she lives in the same place. Clearly she thought they weren't going to come in there. They wouldn't have any cause. I guess as long as they don't have any cause to go inside her home, she's just going to wear wigs and do evasive driving and stuff. Mm. On September 14, 1999, after more than 18 years on the list... Webb was noted as the fugitive with the longest tenure on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. Oh, 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 they'll send you a really cool commemorative T-shirt. You get a plaque or something And a that. plaque, but you have to like make sure they know your address so they know where to send it to. Yeah. <laughs> the FBI, they're like wow, geniuses with this. They're sneaky, aren't yeah. they? In April 2005, an unidentified man in Detroit was found using Webb's name, age and social security number. Detroit police tracked the address to a burned-out house in a poor section of town. Authorities considered this a case of identity theft, another dead end. Yeah, well, it's not like Webb's going to use his own identity at this point, is yeah, it? Yeah, how about that? Yes, that's, of, of, out of all the people whose identity you could choose to mm. steal, right? Well, the FBI are now a bit butthurt mm. because they removed Webb from the 10 most wanted list on March 31, 2007. Well, he didn't collect his prizes. Webb held the record of being on the FBI's wanted list longer than any other fugitive. Oh, you, they sent you all kinds of shit for that. Okay, stop it, Tara. You're embarrassing everyone. Although Webb was still a fugitive considered armed and dangerous by the FBI, the significant lack of leads made some investigators believe Webb had carked it. Oh. But maybe that was just a sneaky FBI ruse to get Webb to pop his head up. For on December 4, 2015, the FBI increased their reward to $100,000. Dollars. Dollars. For information leading to the arrest of Webb or the location of his remains. Well, that's a pretty penny. You'd have to, like, kill your husband or your son to get that. <laughs> Use Normally. your son as a boat anchor on yeah, a Yeah, you could get that then. Yeah. 
Though key investigators, including the FBI special agent assigned to Finding Webb, believed he was still alive. In August of 2016, Pennsylvania State Police obtained a DNA profile from evidence recovered at the 1980 crime scene. The data was entered into CODIS, the FBI's DNA database, but to no avail. The search included so-called John Doe listings of thousands of unidentified male bodies, even skeletons and skeleton heads. Skeleton more commonly heads. known as skulls. <laughs> They're more known as skulls, yes. Found right across the US. So they did the big sweeping search yeah. for his DNA to see if any, yeah. Any nah. deceased people had showed up as him. No pops. No pops at all. No pops. It's a good day when there's no pops. A month later, the FBI finally got a break. After years of on and off surveillance of Lillian, she finally made a mistake. Or rather, her son Stanley did. What did he do? Well, he'd been running his own scams, Tara. What kind of scams? Well, gaming machines. Um, like he'd been... Dirty Frogger? <laughs> he'd been yeah, Dirty Frogger. He'd been diddling gaming machines. He was doing Dirty Frogger. Oh, my Anne's what... getting hard just hearing about what it. What is Dirty Frogger? Oh, well, you know, Frogger's a gaming machine. It's not exactly a gambling machine, but I was thinking maybe he customised it so he always had the highest score. And you could... I don't know, have sex with the machine, Dirty Frogger. That's what I'll say. No, I love it's, it. it's, I love it's it. not sexual, Frogger. It's just dirty because it's not clean. Dirty Frogger sounds like a position you'd ask your wife to do on your anniversary. Oh, like I said, my Anne's getting hard just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, come on, baby. It's an anniversary. Come How about on. some Dirty Frogger? <laughs> I like, told you no. 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 So I guess it runs in the family being a criminal. Quite possibly. So the FBI finally had a search warrant for Lillian's residence. Oh, I want to know what was inside. Oh, you're going to love this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the nondescript house with a manicured lawn in a quiet New England neighbourhood, they found a very strange closet. That's my favourite kind of closet. FBI investigators announced that they had discovered a secret room hidden behind a closet in the basement of Lillian Webb's home. The room had not existed when Lillian purchased the home. Agents also discovered a cane inside the room, which they believe may have been the original cane from Citizen Kane. <laughs> Simpsons reference. Uh, sorry, no. Um, <laughs> which they believe may have been used by Webb after being shot in the leg by Adams. That would make sense. It would. Lillian, tight lips Webb, <laughs> said she had no knowledge of the secret room and had no idea as to the whereabouts of Webb. A likely story. When the secret room was discovered, a resident of the neighbourhood said that she opened her front door to find more than 20 FBI vehicles parked in her street. She's not very friendly, the neighbour said of Lillian. She pretty much kept to herself. It's so crazy. So everyone, everyone listening, any neighbour that's not friendly, it's because they're harbouring a fugitive. Yeah, makes sense. Mm. Hey, so Tara, this room behind the closet. Yeah, yeah, tell me. I want to know everything about the secret room. The room is described as being the size of a large shower stall. It Uh is located behind a closet in the lower basement level. Oh, okay. Well, that's not very big. I'm guessing he only went in there when there were like when someone knocked at the door. Like he probably yeah. didn't live in it the whole. It's like time. your panic room, you know, your go-to yeah. room. It's probably got a go bag in it or something. Oh, who knows? A bag yeah. of goey. <laughs> a what? Bag of goey. Speed. <laughs> really? Just sit in your little closet doing lines of speed and hoping everyone goes away. Yeah, looking at your cane. Looking at your cane, going, it is the one from Citizen Kane. I swear. So with Lillian not talking, Chief Adams's widow. Marianne asked FBI agents to show Lillian pictures of her deceased husband and their young family. 
We were going to try to get Lillian Webb to talk appealing to her empathy, she said. It didn't work. Tight Lips had a cold, cold heart. After talking with her family, Marianne decided to go a different way. My son said she has no empathy. Why don't we try and sue her? That's when I called her attorney. I love that Marianne's still like actively involved in making this this case be solved. Yeah, good on you. Yeah, yeah. They murdered this guy, murdered her husband, and she's just gonna she's gonna get him. Oh, if you go after people's money, that's really gonna make oh, it stand up, isn't it? Really, it yeah. does. I love this. Tell me more. So on June one, in the Butler County Common Pleas Court, on behalf of Marianne and her sons, they filed notice of intent to sue Lillian C. Webb. The C stands for cunt. <laughs> and Donald Eugene Webb and their son Stanley H. Webb. The H stands for... Hairy cunt. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So count one, wrongful death, murder. Count two, civil conspiracy, accessory after the fact. Count three, civil conspiracy, hindering apprehension of a murderer, seeking damages in excess of $1 million. Oh, that's how you do it. Then what happened? Did it work? It. Did it work? Their lawyer acknowledged that no criminal charges had been filed against Miss Webb nor her son, Stanley, but he pointed out the standard proof varies from the civil system to the criminal system. So, for an example, Tara... OJ. That's right. The OJ Simpson case in which Simpson was acquitted of the murders of his estranged wife and her friend. Later, he was found accountable for the deaths in civil court. To convict criminally, the evidence must be beyond a reasonable doubt, as we know. But in civil court, the standard is a balancing test that demands a preponderance of the evidence. Mm-hmm. Not no. a post-ponderance. Not a mid-ponderance. No, a pre. A pre-ponderance. I like that word. It feels good in my mouth. I'm glad to hear that. Faced with the lawsuit, in addition to prosecution for harbouring a criminal, Lillian Webb finally caved and arranged to confess to the police and the FBI. Tight lips turned into loose lips. She did, and they sunk some ships. She came clean about sheltering Webb for all these long years. He had been treated in a Massachusetts hospital under an assumed name for the serious gunshot injuries to his leg in 1980, but more on that later. Uh-huh. She also, and get this, this is awesome, Yeah. led the FBI to his remains buried in her backyard. <gasps> oh, I hope she killed him. I bet she didn't, but wouldn't that be cool? Lillian's lawyer detailed a conversation between Webb and Lillian, which Webb told his wife he believed he was dying and told her to begin digging a hole in the yard to bury his body. Lillian agreed and dug a grave in the backyard. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you dig graves? Yeah, they're cool. They're awesome. Love them. Webb later suffered a stroke and died inside the Dartmouth home. Lillian Webb buried her husband in the grave she had dug. That is some heavy-duty labour. She must have really good shoulders and arms. Ah, it's digging a hole. Yeah. It would be hard to dig a hole big enough. Yeah. It would take some time. According to her story, Webb died in 1999. Oh, so he'd been dead for 18 years? Yeah. <gasps> so, oh, wow. So, okay. Lillian Webb received immunity from prosecution in exchange for providing information about Webb. Okay. Which is a bummer. Yeah, well, you said there's mafia involved. Like, it's possible that she felt threatened. But then again, if she did, she probably would have said something about that, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe witness protection, something like that. Yeah, If she, if right. she could allude to other crimes or other murders. Or, yeah, okay. Uh, 
So the remains have been formally identified by FBI forensic investigators as belonging to Webb. State police documents said that Webb had lived for nearly 17 years hidden by his wife. Uh, I know he probably wasn't in that, like, tiny closet. The whole time. Uh, It would be so great if he was grounded for 17 years and had to live in a shower recess. That'd be a little bit poetic justice, but I bet that wasn't it. I bet he was on the couch eating Cheetos, watching, like, I don't know, swamp people. To stay hidden for that long, you'd probably never leave the house. No. No, unless you went out in the yard to point out where you'd like your grave dug, I guess. (laughs) As investigators suspected, Webb returned to Massachusetts after the murder. When he returned, he spent four weeks at Toby Hospital in Wareham under an alias receiving treatment for the gunshot wound to his leg. In 1980, the hospital did not verify the identity of its patients and only collected patients' names and dates of birth. So they didn't check your license or anything like that. No, it was so easy to commit identity fraud back in the day, back in the good old days. And um, they even went back there and they don't keep records that no, back that long. they wouldn't. And also records. they'd all just be like, well, he said his name was Peter. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know? right. Marianne Adams said she felt anger towards Lillian and her son Stanley Webb. Why would she do that? Why would she hide him? Why would she bury him in the backyard? All I feel is anger, she said in an interview. She acknowledged that she hoped Webb, who would be 85 now, was still alive to face the justice system. My husband, our family, we didn't get any justice. My husband died and he never got to see his kids grow up or meet his grandchildren. Mm -hmm. There is no justice. When asked if she wanted to face Lillian Webb and ask questions about the case, such as whether Donald ever confessed or why he did it, she said, I don't want to talk to her. If I was in the same room, I know I would be arrested for assault. I would not be able to contain myself from punching her in the face. Oh, you go, widow lady. Oh, I love Marianne. Marianne, you rock. Uh, Marianne also said, those early years were difficult. I was living a life I didn't expect to live, but I learned to live as a single mother and to raise my sons. What was a gaping wound was no longer gaping, but you never really get over it, she said. My sons have cycled through several stages of grief as they've grown up. She said that she had basically given up hope that Webb would ever be arrested. The case didn't seem just cold, it seemed frozen. It's a happy ending for everyone else, but not for me and my son, she said. Which is fair enough. Yeah, look, she's definitely got a point. Mm. That Just to hide that long. I know. 18 years. Wow. Such a cockroach. Such a cockroach. Yeah. Wow. Look, at least she knows what became of him. Yeah, And she that's knows right. that he was, like, grounded for 18 years and, like, in the ground. I know it doesn't help, but it's probably better than thinking, like, he's living it up in Havana the whole time. Maybe. Well, that, maybe. well that's right. I mean, he wouldn't have had a great life. He couldn't have left that house. No, he would have probably been quite anemic. And they had her under surveillance all the time, so... They just couldn't go into her house. They had, you know, yeah, they didn't have probable cause. They didn't have probable cause until the dirty frogger. Until the dirty frogger. <laughs> wow! No wonder Marianne's so angry as well. Like yeah. I completely understand that. Mm. I hope that um she's been able to find some peace from this. Yeah, and her children. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hell of a story. Hey, uh, Tara. Yes, Barney. I think we need an Aussie as. I don't know what it is. What is it? 
<laughs> I can't believe you just can't remember. Aussie as a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Give me one now. Okay, I think you're going to like this. It's so wrong. Um, anyone who doesn't like wrong things, you're in the wrong place, i got to say. Turn off now. Well, probably an hour ago, but okay. Most wives would probably consider divorce after finding their husbands making sweet, sweet love to the Sunday roast, but not Glenda Baker. Not Glenda? No. Nah. She woke up one night to realise her husband, Alan, was not in their bed beside her. Glenda went downstairs to the kitchen to investigate. What she saw then has been burned into her retinas ever since. Ooh. Glenda said, Alan was stood next to the table with his pyjama bottoms down, the chicken was defrosting on the table, and he was doing sex to it. I said, Alan Baker, and he spun around in shock. I said, get your dick out of that chicken this instant. That's for our Sunday dinner. He knew I was cross. I twatted him with a spoon. I was furious on the account of my brother and his wife was meant to come for Sunday dinner. Heaven knows what they'd say if they found out that the chicken they was eating, Alan had shagged. Needless to say, the chicken then went into the bin and we had chops instead. <laughs> Glenda says she decided to speak out about this because she wants to show people that marriage can survive after tumultuous incidents and differences of opinion. Well, this is a great uh, example of that, I guess. Well, it's the best example I've heard. She added... People are too quick to divorce these days. I said for better or worse on my wedding day, and I'll stick by that. I shall not get rid of Alan just on account of him shagging the chicken. He's not putting his sausage anywhere near me, though. I don't want salmonella or whatever you get off of an uncooked chicken. <laughs> that last quote makes me think that Alan was raw-dogging the chicken. Yeah, uh, well, he he was. He must have he been. He was defrosting. So I want to ask you this, Barney Black. What would you do if you came downstairs in the middle of the night and found your significant other banging tomorrow night's roast? Ooh, well, I wouldn't eat the food, I guess. Yeah, also it's kind of more weird if it's a chick that's doing it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I'd do? I don't think it's going to happen, by the way, but what I would do... I would film it and then I'd email it to myself just in case I needed to blackmail someone down the track. I'd cook it anyway and make him eat it. <laughs> You'd make Alan eat the whole make, damn roast? Yeah, eat the whole bloody chicken. So, yeah, that was um, that was a classy thing. You know what? I was actually part of a bit of an Aussie as yesterday. Really? Yeah, do you want me to tell you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so it was a beautiful sunny day and I took Pop to the park, which she loves because that she's a dog. Oh, that's right. Dogs yeah. love the park. She loves it. So many things to sniff and do. I was throwing the ball for her and she was chasing it as fast as her little muscly legs could carry her. Then this bull terrier comes up. He's nearly twice her size and he hasn't been spayed, which I think is often just ego on the part of the owner wanting his dog to have like big swinging yeah, balls. Big swinging balls, Like, yeah. you know what? If that's what you're into, that's cool. But keep control of your dog, yeah? Yeah. So I yelled at this dog to go away because he was trying to hump her, but he ignored me. So I was trying to get between this prick and pop, but he was being creepily insistent, like an unwanted dog sex terminator. Every <laughs> Oh, no, really. Like, he just wouldn't stop, yeah. right? And I don't know this dog, so I don't know, like, my limits with this dog. 
Every time he tried to hump her, she was getting more and more savage in her response. She's just like, fuck no, get away from me. I'm trying to play ball, dude. But he was making it so that we couldn't even get the ball. It was really fucked, actually. Um, so, yeah, she was defending herself. Um, but I was really worried that this dog would attack her, even though she was just defending herself, because he was getting more amped up every time she was like, yeah, right. Like he was getting like, no, fuck you. It was getting really heated yeah. and I was starting to be quite concerned. And I was looking around to try and see his owner and he was actually on the other side of a children's playground. So I yelled at him. I'm like, hey, can you call your dog? He keeps trying to hunt my dog and it's really pissing her off. Um, when I was halfway through that sentence, though, I realised how bogan white trash it sounded, <laughs> especially since, like, okay, I was I was yelling oh. it across a children's playground and there were kitties playing there. And I was just like, it's really pissing her off. No, I appreciate your humility in this, in this <laughs> matter, but no does mean no. Well, yes, um, ah. but it gets better, right? So the Pitbull's owner yells back across the kitty playground, just kick him in the ass. So I look at the dog and I think to myself, like, I kind of wanted to, but, like, I'm not going to kick a dog, like, unless there's bloodshed. I'm just not... You know, kick your own dog's ass. (laughs) I didn't quite say that. I actually yelled back. I'm like, I'd rather not kick your dog, mate. Like, I kind of was leaning into it by then. This sounds like something from Snowtown. Oh, I was so shit. Also, I'd been warned by my boyfriend that this dog tries to to bang her and she has to defend herself. What did he say? Watch out for rapey Rodney. Pretty much. Um, Eventually, this guy came and called his dog away and no one kicked it. But it's just really sad because, like, we take her to the park once or twice a day, but she only gets, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, and she just really wants to have fun. And then someone's trying to, like, hump her and she's like, fuck off, man, let me chase my Ball. No, it's not the place, you know. She probably goes to bars to pick up. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, no, you know, she, not doesn't, the park. she doesn't come to the park to pick up. No. No, that's not her scene at all. She's been spayed like most dogs in suburban no. parks have. He was such a bully. Well, that's terrible. Yeah, but anyway, it turned out okay. But oh, I, I tried to avoid it too. But this dog like came across the park to like... <sighs> hey, my kid's grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go and pick up the kids from there... Uh, when she's looking after them, there's they've got a dog called mm. Chief. I, I've met Chief. He's pretty yeah. intense. He's he's a lovely Alsatian or Malamu, Melamar, Melamar. Go with Alsatian. Yeah, he's very excited to see me every time I go there, and I, I I get him to sit and I give him lots of pats and belly rubs. But I know I can't go too far because if I give him too many pats, he wants to make sweet sweet love to me. He tries to fuck me every oh. time. Oh shit. Okay, so, maybe he just finds you really attractive. Well, and yeah, I mean, you know, my kids are here. It's just not the right time. <laughs> oh, <dude. laughs> you know, I'm not up for it, really. Come on. <laughs> on that note. Yes. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. There's also a link to our fabulous merch store. We can get dog outfits. Well, I oh, wish we, we could. Oh, we we need to. Yeah. I'm actually going to put like we don't have the kids options on, but I'm going to put them on for one day so I can buy some for Pop. Yeah. And if anyone else wants that, just let us know. No outfits for Rapey Rodney though. Oh my god, seriously, he just oh. didn't get it and I just wanted him to go away. And I'm I'm glad I didn't actually have to kick him because I'm not into that. And Chief's all right. I know he keeps hitting on me, but you know, you're kind of into it from I've, what I've heard. Well, if I give him a gentle no, it's not today, thank you. Oh, He's okay with that? He's all right with that. Well, he could teach Rodney a lesson or two. 
So I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And we just did some more bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you wanna. Awesome folks in there. There are. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. Yeah, check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes, and of course, the merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a special guest. That's right. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Oh, dogs just don't... There should be a Me Too movement for dogs, I think. Oh, ideally. Yeah. So they caught the... The Garden State Killer. Yeah. And the Ethereum Rapist. Same guy. So I'm thinking that should actually be the new True Crime Nerd Christmas. And so every year on that day, True Crime Nerds buy each other True Crime presents. Wow, that's a great idea. Don't you think? I like it. I like giving presents. I like True Crime. Yeah, let's so, do it. Yeah, True Crime Christmas. What was the date? It was a. Uh, um, it was yesterday here, which would be the 26th. Uh, so True Crime Christmas. Also, do you want to know what I wanted to say today? They had they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997.